0: Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Eric. If you don't know me, we'd love to get to know you and connect with you out in the courtyard and answer any questions you have at the Welcome Center. Also online, want to welcome our friends and family there as well and uh, just take an opportunity to connect with us as you can. Uh, Just a couple of things to let you know. As you walked in, hopefully you saw this kind of big thank you card and you're like, hey, what's that? Um, That is a thank you from a church called Living Grace. They met here for about two years on Sunday nights. Uh, They were meeting at uh, Independence High School and were unable to do that uh, through the COVID times. So they met here and God has blessed them now with their own building right behind Sam's Club. And so they're able to go and gather and worship. And so they want to say thank you to our church uh, for being gracious and just wanted to know that they were just so glad and all their interactions with our church family were amazing. And so uh, yeah, that's a thank you. If you want to see that, you can go ahead and look out there. And just also, you know, we partner with them, uh, sending missionaries to go overseas to, to plant churches, to unreach people groups so that the gospel can go out. Uh, so yeah, so that's what that is. And we're delighted that we could do that with them. Um, second thing, hopefully you're seeing market of hope pictures coming up. And so you'll be able to start prepping for that and praying through maybe what God would have you do to be a part of it. Keep your eye in the mail. I know we don't look at mail sometimes. It's like an old thing, but we did send out catalogs. And so be looking for those so you can start praying through uh, how you could participate with that. And then last thing, uh, the reaffirmation class we have for membership. uh, The last one will be this Wednesday. Uh, If you weren't able to do that, go ahead and make sure uh, you called the church office and make arrangements. And so this Wednesday, uh, 6.30 in the cafe. And then if you're not a member, On October, I believe October, it's there, October 16th, there it is, at 1130, uh, you can come and kind of hear what it is we do, kind of the direction and the doctrine of the church. And again, it's not a handshake or a country club. Um, It's becoming a part of the family. It's being a part of formalizing that relationship. So that'll be on October 16th. So keep all of that in mind. So we're in Matthew chapter 4. And hopefully, what you're seeing is we've been taking some huge chunks Matthew chapter one, Matthew chapter two, Matthew chapter three, because we're trying to keep the story in front of you. How is this gospel unfolding? How is this book unfolding? Um, Versus maybe going like verse one, name, verse one, second word, verse one, third word, and maybe spending like seven years. And so we want you to see everything that's going on. So hopefully, some things that you're catching Matthew is a very Jewish book. It's going through Jewish lineage. This is Jesus, son of David. He's the king. He's the promised king of the Old Testament. He's also the seed of Abraham. He's the lamb to take away the sins of the world. And so then you see him worshiped, affirmed that this is who he is. And then you see him baptized. God speaking, saying, this is my son who I'm well pleased. You see it in the midst of a scandalous marriage in the midst of attempted murder from Herod. And you see Jesus, just God providing over and over again. So now what we're going to see here in chapter four is he's going to prove through his actions that he is who the first three chapters say he is. So that's what's going to be really cool about this is start to see how does Jesus embody through action that he is the son of God, our representative, the one whom we should be like. And so let be asking yourself that question. I encourage you, you know, write down some of these Old Testament passages, go back and read them and just see how the Bible works together as one continuous story that God is working out his plan um, to redeem his people through his son. Let's pray and we'll hop into Matthew chapter four. Dear Jesus, we thank you that we can just read your word. We can see Um, What you went through, what you were like, uh, how you did this, how you um, came and dwelt among us, how you lived a perfect life. Um, It's my prayer your word would uh, just ignite our heart, excite us, encourage us, convict us um, to want to be like you. And so we pray for your words uh, in this time and not mine. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter four. So chapter three kind of leaves on Jesus coming out of the water. And God saying, this is my son, who I am well pleased. And then you're going to see that sonship challenged by Satan. He's going to say in verse 3, if you're the son of God. And then he's going to say in verse 6, if you're the son of God. And so what he's saying is, if, we want to qualify. Who is the if? What does it mean, son of God? Okay, we're talking about Psalm chapter 2, 7 through 9. This is what's being questioned. It says, I will tell you of the decree. Um, the Lord said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of your of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." So what is he saying? Are you this son who's going to rule the nations? going to crush them into pieces with his rod of iron? If you're this son, prove it. And so this chapter four is going to show us this is how the son of God is actually supposed to act. This is what he's supposed to do. And what you'll see in the Old Testament is that the wilderness, the desert, operates as this kind of testing and exposing of of God's children. It reveals what's in their heart. It shows what's going on. It prepares them for the next thing. And so Jesus is going to do what exactly had happened with Moses, what happened with Israel, He's is going to go into the wilderness. And so just to kind of help you picture maybe what that is like, we put it up here. I want you to see. Um, this is the Judean desert. And you go ahead and you look at that. I want you to see uh, that that's that's better looking than Bakersfield, right? No, it's worse, right? It's worse. So be encouraged. So it's, it's literally, you see, it's hilly. It's big. It's huge. It, it, it's overwhelming. There's, there's nothing full of life or beautiful about it. He's literally in the wilderness or in the desert. Go to the next one. You kind of see a vantage point says it brings him up and he can look out and he can see that's Jericho in the distance. And so just kind of helping you see this is a real place that Jesus really went to and he was really tried and really tested. And so when you look at your Old Testament, there's some things going on here. I want you to catch this. So let's look at verse 2. It says, he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. It says that he was hungry. Again, is he hungry in his deity or his humanity? Humanity, right? Deity and humanity together. In his humanity. And it says, the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones of loaves of bread. But what does he answer? But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's reliving Old Testament just uh, instances where they were tested in the desert. So you have to think, how did, how did Moses come into his preparation? How did Moses come to be? Look at Deuteronomy 9.9. 9. This is Moses. He says, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you. I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So what are you seeing? Jesus is doing as Moses did. Moses was prepared to go give the 10 commandments. He met with the Lord. He communed with the Lord. What is Jesus doing? He's in the wilderness talking to the Lord, preparing what are we going to get to in Matthew chapter five? Sermon on the Mount. And so as you read through this, you're seeing Jesus is going to be the greater Moses. Jesus is going to be the better Adam. Jesus is going to be the better Israel. Jesus is going to succeed and everything prior to him has failed. He's going to be the son that is supposed to be there. And so in the wilderness, it's supposed to kind of expose, where does your heart beat? What is your heart fond of? And you have to think of this. Moses, he's, he's the redeemer, right? He leads his people out of Egypt and he leads them into the promised land. Jesus, out of Egypt, he's going to lead us out of sin and into a relationship forever with him in heaven. He's going to take us to the better place because he's the better redeemer. He's not going to fail. So it's drawing these images going, look, Moses. But Moses fails, doesn't he? Does Moses go into the promised land? No. He dies on Mount Nebo. Just looking over, he can see the promised land. He dies knowing he failed. Israel spends 40 years wandering. And what does Deuteronomy 8 tell us? This is where you get this not living by bread alone. You got to tie this together. Deuteronomy 8 says, and you shall remember the Lord, or you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you These 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, there's that word, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what do we see? We see where Israel was led, Israel was tested, and Israel failed, that Jesus is going to be, what do we see in verse one, led by the Spirit. And he's going to be obedient to the very commands of God. He's going to do what Israel couldn't. Now here's where I want you to take notice. I think sometimes when you find yourself in a hard situation, you find yourself in a wilderness, you find yourself maybe in pain and agony and anguish, the first thought is, man, I did something wrong, or God is disciplining me. No, I don't want to negate that, but what this passage is getting at is that God led Israel to the wilderness through Moses, and that Jesus was led to the wilderness through the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes God says, I'm going to take you here. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prepare you. I'm going to reveal something. Now, in this, I want you to also grasp this. God did take Israel into the wilderness, and he's taking Jesus, right, into the wilderness. But he took Israel out of bondage, somewhere bad, took them somewhere better, and is going to lead them to something even greater, the promised land. Same thing. God has taken us away from our sin. Jesus has just come out of the water, right? We've come through that. We've been saved. Then he prepares us, and then he sends us to something greater, that relationship. So you see this over and over again. And so a question to ask yourself, you find yourself in a hard situation, life-pressing. That, that the wilderness, the reason I show that, it's overwhelming. You're alone. You're desolate. No help. All by yourself. It begins to reveal some things about you. Think of Israel. What does it reveal about them? They want the blessing of God, but not the relationship with God. They get into the wilderness, and what are they saying? Can we go back to Egypt? It's very similar to prison. You have an overlord. You have your meals. You have your quarters. And you have your job, and it never changes. Like, we want to go back there. This food is weird. This manna, there's no water. It reveals to them they'd rather have comfort than wandering in the desert, trusting the Lord to be their food, to be their water, to be their God, to be their provision. See, they want the blessings, but not the relationship. At the same time, they're forgetting God had all of those plagues, and he saved them through those plagues. He parts the Red Sea. He saves them through that, crushes Pharaoh's army. In the wilderness, we often forget what God had done in the past. And then we take our own path in the wilderness, trying to soothe what's in the flesh. Soothe either it's a fear or it's a desire or it's a pain. You know, where are we drawing this? Look at what does it say in verse two? It says that he was hungry. Jesus was hungry after 40 days. See, Satan comes and he tests and he tries in a moment of weakness. 40 days. You ever been hangry before? Yeah? Can okay, you know what that feeling? When you're hangry, that's hungry plus angry combined. You'll move a mountain. You'll kill a child. Whatever it takes, right? You'll eat it. You don't care if it's on the floor, if it was right. You just want food and you want it to be satisfied. See, this is when you will be tempted. It's in that deep emotional angst. He's going to come to you. And what are you going to see in this wilderness narrative is Jesus is always going to say, you're satisfying the temporary, but I'm tied to the eternal. That food is a temporary satisfaction. This is why he quotes Deuteronomy 8. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying, I will not take temporary satisfaction and ignore that God is my sustainer. He is the one who is with me. I'm not going to break that relationship to fill this need. That's one of the things we have to know about ourselves. Is when you find yourself in the wilderness, where you will get preyed upon, where you will be tempted, will be in that pain. That thing that makes you go, I have to solve this. I have to do it right now, whether it's fear, Whether it's anxiety, whether it's trying to numb the way you feel about yourself. You're going to try to do it, but it's going to be temporary. Never exchange the temporary or the eternal for the temporary. See, these testings, each thing. You move on to the next thing. What does he offer Jesus? He takes him up to a hill. He says, look, throw yourself down and God will save you. What is he doing? He's twisting the word of God. He's twisting Psalm 91. Psalm 91 walks through this imagery that God saves us, and he keeps us, and he protects us, and he doesn't let things come against us. But what it doesn't say is you can go do whatever you want, and if God really loves you, he'll stop it from happening. See, Satan is trying to twist the scripture to say, "See." Prove it. You can tell God what to do. He can work for you. Similar to the garden, isn't it? Did God really say that? He doesn't want you to succeed. You can succeed. You can usurp Him. You can be like Him. See, we don't directly make that correlation, but we kind of deductively do it. We kind of do a roundabout. And this is what I mean. We come to God and we say, you know what? I've done a lot of good things. I should never have to have cancer. I should never have to have someone hate me. I should never have to worry about my freedom. I should never have to worry about this because I've earned it. God, you have to do this. It says, no, God, I act, you clean up. If God really loves me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. And all of a sudden we twist the scripture where God works for us. See, Psalm 91 was not written as a do whatever you want and God will be right behind you with a mop cleaning you up. How does Jesus use Psalm 91 later? He's saying, hey, if I'm in trouble, my father will protect me. I'm not worried. Meaning if it comes to me, if it causes it to come to me, he will be there. My father will take care of me. See, this is so important. There's, there's two things I want you to catch here. Two things I want you to catch. Very, very important. One. How is Jesus addressing Satan in these temptations? He's addressing him with scripture. He's addressing him with Old Testament passages. There would be some pastors who really shouldn't be called pastors who would tell you the Old Testament is unhitched from the new. We don't use it. Here would be my simple contention. If it's good enough for Jesus... You can fill in the blank, right? It's good enough for us. It's good enough for us. Absolutely, is good enough for us. Jesus is using it to show him this. So this is the Son of God using the words of God to overcome the temptations of the devil. Okay? Now I want you also to take notice in in the Luke accounts. Adam is also in the genealogy called the Son of God. Adam, just catch this. Catch this in the garden. He has optimal situation, right? Everything is beautiful and new and it's created. He's not alone. He has a wife. He has a partner, companion. So with a companion, an optimal setting, he still what? Fails. Jesus, in the worst of settings, wilderness, cross, is still obedient, succeeds. What does that teach you? Two things. Doesn't matter how good it is, you can still fail. And it doesn't matter how bad it is, he's still with you. You see, you come to this text as Jesus is the example. You're going to be tested in your weakness. You're going to be told that you can, that God is not worked this way. He works like this. It's going to be twisted on you. The, the next part, this is where you're seeing, and again, the world used to be like our biggest enemy, but now it's, it's churches. It's Christian churches. And, and they, 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 do, they do what Satan is doing. And, and they say, you know what? If, if, you, if you're good enough and you have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Then something bad happens to you. See, don't have enough faith. See, you could have given more. Because you could always be better and you can always give more. So you're always a slave. It's like, oh, you didn't give enough. As if God's sitting up there going, if you would have given 100 but you gave 99, cancer it is. And they just beat you with that. See, God says he wants to make you happy. God says you ask it, he'll give it. He's not giving it because you don't have enough faith. You're not being good enough. and He beats that. Why is this passage important for that? Because God leads him into the wilderness. God takes him to a dark place. He takes him here and he says, you're going to be tested. He takes him to the cross. If God's son is tried in this way, what makes us think that nothing bad will ever happen to us? The scriptures never teach that you won't have pain, you won't have suffering, and you won't have hard times. The scriptures teach that you have everything you need in God, in Christ. His words sustain you. This is what Jesus does in John 4 with the woman at the well. She wants water. He says, no, that's temporary. You need living water. They say, Jesus, you need food. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father, saying God sustains me in all things. I trust him in the hardest of times. This is how he stands up to Satan. Third thing Satan offers him, he says, look, I will give you all of these cities. I will give you all of these kingdoms in verse 8. He showed him all the kingdoms. You guys think, Rome is huge, massive, and the Colosseum, and cities, and structures, and marble, and gold. He sees all the kingdoms. He says, I'll give them to you if you worship me. Jesus says, no. He says, you worship, verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, he quotes scripture. What is he trying to do to Jesus? Because in Psalm 2, it already says Jesus is going to get the nations, Right? So if the nations are already his, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get them to not go to the cross. He's saying you don't need to suffer. You can have it right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. Everything you're going to get, you can get it right now. You don't have to take on the wrath of God. Remember Isaiah 53, for our griefs, he was stricken. You don't have to be stricken. I'll give it to you. You just got to worship me right now. See, these are the wilderness experiences where you'll be tempted to ignore the relationship to get the blessing. See, that's what Satan does. The blessing without the relationship. See, the thing is though, there really is no blessing without the relationship. Because if Jesus worships Satan, it's all over. It's not actually a blessing. It's a lie. It's a trick. And the trick is that somehow we can avoid pain By following a different God. The reality is there's pain either way. Just one's eternal hell and one's not. Temporary suffering on earth. And so Jesus says, no, I worship God. I serve him, not you. Okay. Now this takes us to some very key theological points we have to understand is how does Satan work who is Satan, so that we understand what's going on, okay? First chart, I want you to see. This is typically how you see, I don't want to say typically, but it's more pervasive now. It's happening more now than it used to. Is that Satan is off on one side and God is off on another. And Satan and God are battling it out for cosmic control. God is good, Satan is evil, and there's this epic battle to the death. They like that because all things that are bad, God can't control. God has no say so. couple problems with that. One, it makes Satan not a created being. He doesn't have a beginning point. So he's uncreated, God's uncreated. That's a problem, isn't it? Not a trick question. It's a huge problem. Huge problem. Satan is not outside of that. It's very clear in the scripture, Satan was created. He's a fallen angel. Angels are created beings. God is the only one eternal. Now go to this next slide. This is the biblical way to look at it, but this is why it gets uncomfortable. Everything is within the control of God. This is what we see with Job, isn't it? Job is, is there, he's a man, and Satan goes to God and he says, may I do this? Nothing passes without the permission of God. We don't like this. Why? Because we look at things like hurricanes in Florida and say, you're telling me God could stop that? Yes. And he's not? No. Well, that's not a God I can believe in. Well, you just found your wilderness problem. Trusting the character and nature, sovereignty and justice of God. This is why Jesus says, Him shall I serve. What's what's Satan kind of between the lines saying? You're going to go to a cross and bear the wrath of God to get the kingdoms? You don't need to do that. I'll just give them to you now. What kind of father does that to a son? I love you way more. I'll just give it to you. I'm just asking you to take a knee. Jesus, I would rather go to the cross and suffer and serve him than have no pain and serve you. See, Jesus is modeling sonship. To the highest degree, he's going to have the blessing because he has the relationship. God is going to walk him through the wilderness. Just as the Spirit led him in, the Spirit will lead him out. The Spirit will lead him to the cross. It will rise him from the grave in glory and in victory. He will not shortcut the process. See, the wilderness is where God teaches us. The wilderness is where we get exposed. That we care about comfort. We care about freedom. We care about not suffering. We care about image. We care about being like the other nations, the other people. And Satan dangles things in front of us and says, they'll love you more if you do this. You'll be more safe if you do this. All you have to do is not serve him, ignore the relationship, and I'll give you the blessing." Jesus now becomes the first one to not sin in that moment. Adam sins, Moses sins, Israel sins. And what is God doing in this? He's preparing him. Because we're going to get to Matthew chapter 5 and what? Sermon on the Mount. He's going to be like, I tell you now. And then he's going to go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's going to go to the cross. God prepared him in the wilderness to keep being obedient, to keep being obedient. And Jesus demonstrates over and over and over and over, I'd rather be with the Father. Literally the worship song, take the world, but give me God. See, that's the model that we get to see. Um, a quote here from John Wolver it says, Satan by nature and program is committed to usurp God's place, to oppose God's will, And to corrupt all that is holy and good. And so for us, that's saying that our temptation is going to come in the same way it came to Adam and even the same way it came to Jesus. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? God actually just wants you to be you. He just wants you to be happy. He wants you to have no pain, no suffering. And if something happens, you just need to work harder. You just need to try harder. Instead of accepting the literal fact that maybe God just has you there, and he says, trust me, I love you. Eat my words, right? Take on me, trust me. What did we just come out of in chapter three? Bearing fruit, remaining, right? And how do you bear fruit? You remain, you abide, you stay in relationship with God. And you produce fruit. What happens in the wilderness? You trust God. Moses, Jesus, they're praying. They're being satisfied, sustained, kept. And then when the temptation comes, Jesus uses the word of God, says no. He uses the word of God, says no. And then at the final temptation, he has a rebuke, right? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. I wish I could have been there. It was so It's so epic in my mind, right? Like just like the whole earth stops, microphone drops. Jesus goes off in the glory. It doesn't say that, right? But what a moment. It's like, I'm done. You're done. Go away. I worship him and I serve him only. See, Jesus cuts to the very end of it and he shows us God can sustain you through all things. He is exactly what you need. Do not believe anything that is false. Do not twist God's word. Do not let the wilderness to get you so desperate that you'll ignore the relationship, seeking the blessing It's actually not a blessing because you're serving the wrong master. You're serving the wrong king. And so hopefully what you see through a rebuke over and over again is Jesus uses scripture. That's why it's so important that we know the Bible. And what's beautiful about this text is that that there's even someone using their Bible, Satan, but he's using it wrongly. This is why Psalm 119 tells us, thy word have I hidden in thy heart that I might not sin against you. Meaning the word of God helps you know what's not the word of God. And what's been happening in our culture is Christians are being eaten alive through people twisting scripture because the Christians just simply do not know the scriptures well enough. to say, God never said that. That's a lie. Think how, how many troubles you could have saved yourself. You're just like, oh yeah, God doesn't say that. Instead of, oh, he does. And then you follow. Jesus sets the model. Jesus sets the model. He uses the words of God to guide his life in suffering, in pain. And even when he's offered the world, he chooses to serve and love God. And then it ends with this beautiful picture of Satan leaving and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus, from that moment forward, God has tested and revealed and proved this is the son. This is the king and this king will die for you. He will love you. He's preparing a place for you and he's going to model for you what it looks like to be obedient even in the hardest and darkest of circumstances. That should give us incredible hope in all situations, doesn't it? That even Jesus suffers, even Jesus has pain, but God loves him. God is pleased with him. God is with him. Those are great words for us now, aren't they? And what you have to realize is he's preparing him for the next thing. In in, in wilderness situations, God is preparing you. He's preparing you for the next thing. He's preparing you for the next moment so you know how to walk through that faithfully to see the word of God sustain you and keep you faithfully. Some questions for us to ask ourselves. What is the best way to pass a test? This is where all the teachers say, studying preparation, 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 reading the word of God, knowing the word of God, talking about the word of God so that when it comes up, you say, nope. It's not what it says. I'm prepared. You can't just ride this hype train. I just love him and I'll do anything for him, but I know nothing about him. I know none of what he says. I just know I have this great emotional attachment with no depth and no knowledge of character or work or deed or action. So at the first time something hard comes, that emotion fades because there's really no relationship. There's just chasing the blessing. Two, how does Jesus respond to Satan's request? God's word, God's word, God's word. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for us, amen? Okay, keep working. Three, what does Jesus' use of the Old Testament and Satan's teach you? It's true, it's accurate, and it works. Satan tries to twist it because he knows, hey, Jesus listens to the word, the word is good, but if I can just twist it, I can just twist it. It shows us that the Old Testament's important. God's teaching us from the Old Testament, ties us to the New Testament, that God is redeeming his people through his son. He keeps his promises. He doesn't forget. He loves. Four, are there any areas in your life where you doubt God's word? Because wherever that is, that's where you will be tested. Satan will come and he will twist. God doesn't really care about sexuality. God really doesn't care about sex before marriage. He doesn't really care about lying or drunkenness or your money or coming to church. Does he really care about that? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Wouldn't he rather you be happy? Wouldn't he rather you to look? Yeah, he would. Because you trust, because you fail to trust or you struggle to trust God, that's what will be attacked. So it's very important, wherever your struggle, wherever your pain, wherever your insecurity, you go to the word of God and you let it anchor you So that when that temptation comes, you can, as Christ did, trust and serve and worship him. Five, what does this passage teach you about God? He keeps his word. About Jesus, obedient in all situations. Holy Spirit, he leads us in the hard circumstances sometimes. And Satan, he'll do anything to destroy our relationship with God. Jesus showed us how to keep it. The Holy Spirit helps us and God keeps us. These are the things we see here, that God is with us in the wilderness, even when we think he's not, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for your word. Um, It's our prayer that your word would illuminate our hearts, um, that it would guide us, that it would help us in the wilderness, it would help us in the dark places. Um, It's my deep prayer that we would trust you in all things, that we would store your word in our heart, we would treasure it. And that if we were offered the world, if we were offered all of our heart's desires, we would say, no, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, that's our cry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're, we're gonna go into a, a time of communion and we're gonna do a little different this morning. Um, one of the fun things about our church right now is we are growing. And we're seeing new faces and new people. And so I'm getting lots of questions about various things. Communion is one of them. And so what we want to do is maybe just take this morning to walk through very intentionally what communion is and what the scriptures teach. And so first thing uh, to understand, this is so connected to what's going on in Matthew. Don't miss that. If you missed last week's sermon, listen to it. What did we see last week? It says, right, to practice repentance that's consistent with bearing fruit, right? So the repentance and bearing fruit come together. So one of the things I hear is, you know, man, I wish we had more time in communion. And and I love that. And I love that our people want to spend time with God and they want to talk and they want to pray. But here would be my encouragement to you. Don't wait for communion to repent of your sins. What I kind of see is Christians, they store up their sin. They're like, oh, communion. All the song's playing. I'm not done. And then repentance somehow stops. And then you have to wait another two weeks. See, what you saw in Matthew chapter 3 is you're practicing repentance. It's a daily thing. It's a daily thing where it's, God, I've sinned against you. You've forgiven me. God, this is the sin I've committed. You've forgiven me. So when you get to communion, you've been experiencing the the forgiveness and the love, remembering the cross all week. So that when you get to that communion moment, you get this reminder of what he did on the cross. You maybe confess, and then you get to celebrate that work of the cross through worship, through singing. That's something you can't do on your own. Corporate worship, declaring in front of people that you're thankful for what Christ did on the cross for you. And so even though maybe we're singing, you can keep praying through that, but my, my heart would be that you would actually, you're, you're practicing that so much that you get to now celebrate that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You get to celebrate that through song. If you're not a Christian, you know, communion is not something you do because you've not accepted or believed that Christ is that payment. So you'd let it pass. But for the Christian, for the Christian, it's a celebration. So here's my, my point. Don't divorce worship from communion. Communion is the celebration of that communion. It's the celebration of that work on the cross. It's the extension. It's the gathering of your brothers and sisters all celebrating that one singular event that Christ paid for you so important. And so when we read Matthew 26 through 28 in chapter 26, this is this is what's coming together. It says, now that they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body. So the bread represents his body. 27, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Communion is remembering that body broken, that blood shed, buried and risen, victory over sin on our behalf. And so there is a remembering and then there is a celebrating. So I'm gonna pray and then give you some time to just pray confess before the Lord, thank the Lord. If you have a family, you know, do that with your kids. Teach them what it's like to confess sin. Teach them what it's like to thank God for sending His son to die on the cross. But what we're going to do different is I want you to hold the elements. You know, so as you're going through that, get ready. Remember, bread first from the bottom, then the Jews hold it. And after a couple of minutes of praying, we'll take it together And then we're gonna stand and we're gonna celebrate what Jesus did together. Okay, so I'm gonna pray and then you're gonna have some time on your own just to pray and confess to the Lord and thank him. Dear Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross, for being the literal perfect payment that we could never be, being obedient in all situations, in the wilderness, on the cross, in the garden. You trust the father, you trust the father, you do what we couldn't. Without you, we could never be with the Father. Without you, we could never go to heaven. Without your perfect payment, we are condemned for eternity to hell. We thank you for saving us. Be with us as we pray. Help us remember what you've done and then lead us in that celebration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I'm gonna give you a couple of minutes now. Just go ahead and pray. If you go ahead and grab the bread, um, Jesus would say something to the effect of, this is his body broken for us. Eat in remembrance of him. This is his blood poured out for our sin. Drink in remembrance of him. Now, after doing that, if you you still need to pray, that's fine. But what I'm going to encourage you to do is to sing. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And we're going to sing that no day of our life has passed. That he has not proved us in his sight. That the best we have to offer, like Isaiah tells us, are these filthy rags. But yet he still loves us. He still loves us. That all things in me. Plead for my rejection, but all things in you. We are guilty, but been pardoned. By grace, we've been set free. These are the things we're rejoicing in the cross. We're rejoicing in the work that he's done. We're, We're clinging to that. See, in the cross, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have a relationship with the Father. We have a home in heaven that is ours. We have family in the church. We have a helper in the Holy Spirit. All those things come together in the cross. And we say, to the cross, I cling. You're clinging to those promises, to those truths. And that's why you're celebrating. That's what it means to celebrate in communion. Thank you for the cross, to the cross I cling. So go ahead and stand, church family. And we're going to celebrate this together, the work of Jesus.